You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Hello, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, and you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the headquarters of the Office of Cable, Television, Film, Music, and Entertainment. The same building is also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television, so it's a great place to be. I am uh, Josh Gibson, Director of Communications, and I'm your host. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of D.C. Definitely follow us if you're not already doing that. Uh, People know us from Twitter as... uh, being engaged with residents and formative, conversational, and sometimes even entertaining. And that's our goal on the radio as well. We believe in the Mary Poppins School of Communication. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We're trying to make it easier for the average resident to understand what the council does. We're trying to demystify our work and the people who do it. We don't want this to be the company line or an infomercial. We also don't want it to be the constant interruption and gotcha of talk radio. We want the council members to be able to think and speak in paragraphs. We want you to learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. We're going to be interviewing a council member a week. There's 52 weeks in a year, 13 council members. So we should be interviewing each council member four times a year and hopefully get a chance to know them pretty well. This first round of interviews, though, is going to be definitely getting to know you, uh, some background, some biographical, uh, a little more personal. So without any further ado, let me introduce our uh, our uh, guest today, who is Councilmember Vincent Gray of Ward 7. Thank yeah, you. Oh, How are you, Thank Josh? you. Very, very good. Me. I appreciate it. Oh, great. Grateful to have you here. Mm-hmm. This is something new, but mm-hmm. uh, hopefully something exciting. Um. How, how should I address you? Council member, mayor? What, what is your preference? Let me see. I've had uh, mayor, uh, chairperson, council member. I feel like I'm in the recycle program. Uh, I'm back as a council member now. So I'm delighted to be able to do the people's work. Uh, the mayor title sticks, of course, for life. Uh, in fact, somebody was telling me it was Tom Sherwood. I think that once you have whatever title you have, uh, you keep whatever the highest one is, uh, you know, throughout your uh, life. So um, people address me with all of those titles. Uh, Josh and I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Now, in doing a little research on you, I came across your middle name, and that was new to me. So <laughs> it's, can you- it's new to a lot of people, and I don't, I don't really uh, use my middle name. As a matter of fact, my son is Vincent C. Gray. And I made sure he didn't have the same middle name as I. His, his name is Carlos, which is exactly what he goes by. Gotcha. Now, can, can you disclose the, the name and I the don't, history? I never talk about it. Okay. All right. I, I can disclose the history. It, it was uh, my godfather's last name. And I looked it up in the phone book once, and he was the only person in the phone book with that last name. So thank you to my uh, parents for that one. <laughs> you always have to, as a parent, you yeah. always have to think of uh, yeah, yeah. What, what are the kids right. in the schoolyard going to say, uh, <laughs> you know, because you're, you're with that name for the rest of your life. Absolutely. So, okay. Um, now, uh, something else that was interesting to me was your, your college history. Because yep. you've, you've been in D.C. all along, and you attended college here. I did. And tell me a little bit about that, because I feel like you were uh, in a bit of an odd role. You were... 
Well, I'm a native Washingtonian. Uh, I went to um, I went to uh, public schools of uh, Washington D.C. of the District of Columbia. I went to Logan Elementary School. I went to Dunbar uh, Langley Junior High School and Dunbar High School. And after Dunbar, I went to George Washington University, which was really a uh, a very interesting uh, educational experience in many ways. Um, I, I don't know how far you want to go with this conversation, but um, actually. Um, there were very few African Americans at George Washington University when I uh, when I went there. Uh, of fifteen thousand students, there might have been twenty five African Americans, and two or three of them actually had gone to Dunbar High School. It was a very difficult uh, environment. In fact, the uh, valedictorian from my class went there uh, from high school. The salutatorian, uh, which of course is the number two uh, person, ranked person. She went there as well, and they both left uh, after the first year. And it was such a difficult environment that I anticipated, I, I uh, considered leaving as well. And um, my parents, neither of whom went to high school, um, I knew they would have been very disappointed if I did that. So I thought about it and thought about it, and I said to myself, you know what, if you run away from this, you run away from something for the rest of your life. And uh, so I decided to stay. It was probably one of the best decisions that I've ever made uh, in my life. Um, I was actually, ultimately, I was the first African-American to be in a fraternity uh, at George Washington uh, University. And, you know, breaking the color line and opening the doors for other people has always been the kind of thing that I wanted to do, especially as a part of public service, to be able to do things that people need and that they may not have had access to uh, heretofore. Right, and there's, there's making the best of a complicated situation, and then mm-hmm. there's what happened to you, where you're a fish out of water, then you get into a fraternity, where you're an even more of a fish out of water, because uh, my understanding is it was a primarily Jewish fraternity? It was a Jewish fraternity, uh, with some great guys. As a matter of fact, uh, they had a rule when you went through Rush um, that you had to visit every fraternity house uh, on the campus and spend at least 20 minutes there. Um, I, I remember there was one fraternity that said they were off campus, uh, and they said, you know, if he sends his card here, we'll be happy to sign it because we don't want him here. Uh, so they signed my card. I didn't want to go into a place where I wasn't wanted. Uh, I went to another fraternity on the camp, which was on the physically on the campus, and um, I spent the obligatory uh, 20 minutes uh, there. They signed my card, and I left, and... Um, uh, they they uh, ignored me the whole time uh, I was there. I went to another fraternity, which was notorious for its racist uh, policies, and I really was uh, unnerved going in there. And they really were actually pretty cordial. Uh, I spent 45 minutes there. Uh, there came a point when there was one of the uh, members uh, of the fraternity who had been drinking too much, and uh, when he got when he saw that I was getting ready to leave, he's you know he started you know in a slurred way. Um, you know, why do you want to leave? What's wrong with you? Is something wrong with this place? I said, no. And I just backed out the door at that stage because I knew uh, that if something happened, I would be blamed for having starting something and having started something in this fraternity. And um, I would be the guy, the fall guy. Uh, so I just, you know, politely walked out. Ultimately, um, I, I uh, did pledge a fraternity, Tau Epsilon Phi, which is a national uh, fraternity, predominantly Jewish, as you indicated, uh, Josh. And um, 
the, some of the people who, the, the folks who were brothers in that fraternity, all these years later, some of them I'm still very close friends uh, to, uh, even today. What is really interesting was, after a year and a half in the fraternity, um, there were actually some of the folks who came to me and said, um, have you ever thought about being the chancellor? So the chancellor? <laughs> the chancellor is the president of the fraternity. I said, of course not. I've not thought about that. And uh, the people, you know, the, the, the members who were involved in this said, you know, we think you could do a good job. And so ultimately I decided to run. I put together a platform. I put together, you know, some people who supported me. And then, of course, not so long that, thereafter, I learned one of the reasons why I think they wanted me to do it. They were, they were virtually bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> and they needed somebody, I guess, to, you know, to pin on the uh, condition, financial condition of the fraternity. And uh, I was a, a, a good uh, candidate for that at that stage. We ultimately got the, uh, we, we got the fraternity out of debt. Uh, I, I got elected for a second term. And um, we had a huge pledge class my second year. Uh, even though there were some people who were spreading the awful rumors about this is, you know, a fraternity is turning all African-American, all black, all Negro, as they said in those days. And uh, you don't want to go there. And um, we were able to scotch uh, those kinds of uh, statements. And um, ultimately, the fraternity got on its feet and did very well uh, thereafter until it ran into some other kinds of problems, which had nothing to do with race. Gotcha. But it's not bad going from a fish out of water at a university to uh being elected by your peers as president of your fraternity. That's well, that's a, absolutely right. And uh, again, uh, I saw one of my fraternity brothers just recently. Uh, I was at a basketball game uh, with him, and he and I have stayed in touch uh, over all these years. There are others you know, who are members of the fraternity who I've stayed in touch with. And there's no question, Josh, that there are doors that have been opened to me as a result of being at George Washington University that would not have been the case. Um, had a professor, Dr. Eva Johnson there, who was a uh, professor of psychology. Because I went to undergraduate and graduate school uh, at George Washington, went to graduate school in clinical psychology. And she became a real mentor uh, to me. She helped to steer me uh, on what became a career path for me, and that is working with people with mental retardation. I got involved, very involved with uh, public policy. Uh, She helped me get a summer job uh, when I was in school at the uh, what was then called the Association for Retarded Citizens. And um, it ultimately became a place where I, I got a job and had a very um, you know, satisfying uh, number of years working uh, for the ARC, as is now known. Now let's take one more step back in history. Talk to me a little bit about your baseball past. Yeah. <laughs> I think about baseball when I think of your name. Oh, yeah, Josh exactly. Gibson. Honored to have it. Josh Gibson was one of the was maybe the greatest baseball player ever. Never got a chance to play in the uh, major leagues. Uh, uh, he, he was around uh, when Jackie Robinson came along, as I'm sure you know. Uh, and... Um, he, he didn't have a temperament, I think, that was suited to be able to take some of the things that Jackie Robinson was subjected to. But I had a really great baseball career. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, scouted by uh, Major League teams. Um, I had a chance for Major League tryouts. Um, and I decided not to pursue it. And I, th- this, even today, I think back and say, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, you know, what would have happened if I had pursued that? I was really a good baseball player. I just had this fear that I wasn't going to make it. Uh, I could really hit. I'm left-handed, and um, I play first play first base. 
and um, just wonder today what would have been the outcome if I had pursued that, you know, more seriously. And I promised myself in the aftermath of that I would never not try to do something again because I had the fear of failure. Uh, that was what it was. It was a fear of failure, and I chose not to pursue it. So I played uh, played on lots of different teams. I even played into uh, adulthood, uh, and then I turned, like many people do, turned to softball uh, as an adult, which is a great game uh, also. I've had the chance to play with some of the uh, some of the greatest players in the metropolitan Washington area, uh, and look back on those times uh, with a lot of glee. But I also look back on it and say, I wonder if I had pursued this, would I have been successful? Yeah, and there's there's no worse feeling than that. Yeah, that a little bit really of one if uh, That's in the right, back here. What if? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I bet I bet there are times when it's hour six of a performance oversight hearing, and you're saying, <laughs> ah, I wish I could be at the ballpark right now. Absolutely, you know. And and sometimes those oversight hearings get a little long. Uh, yeah. And it's not it's not hard to be able to uh, to ruminate to fantasize about you know what you think could have been. The problem is now it's just fantasizing for me because I didn't pursue uh, that course in ways that I wish I had. Um, I played with people who, you know, had tryouts. Um, I had a, a friend in high school who went on to have a tryout with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, and there were some great ball players who came up in my high school, who came up in um, my neighborhood, uh, people who were really good. And frankly, it's interesting, too, that since you bring up baseball, it's interesting, too, that how baseball at the youth level has declined uh, so much in the District of Columbia. It's one of the reasons why when baseball came to the city, uh, you know, and they, they were trying to elicit support for council members to vote for the building of a stadium. I was asked uh, what was important to me, and I said, I'd really like to see a baseball academy, uh, academy built uh, and operated in the city. And the question was, what is a baseball academy? I said, well, they have them in Latin America. Um, they are great pipelines uh, for folks who really are interested in playing uh, professional baseball. And we don't have one uh, in the metropolitan Washington area. We don't have one in D.C. And I think it's a great way, as I said then, it's a great way to get kids interested in baseball who are very talented. Uh, so many kids had abandoned baseball for basketball or football or some other uh, endeavor. And I wanted to bring kids back to baseball. And we ultimately, um, we, got, uh, we got a million dollars from uh, the uh, team, from the Nationals. We got money from Major League Baseball. But the city uh, put up a lot of money, uh, about $12, 13000000 million, to build a baseball academy, which is now located uh, in Ward 7 and is training kids for a, a career in baseball or just to be able to have fun uh, playing baseball. Yeah, the demographics of baseball seem like they've been changing even in my lifetime. Hugely. Um, I think that only 8 or 9% of the ballplayers today are African Americans, uh, which is a very uh, small number given the, um, you know, given the talents that we have in this city and across the nation. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's fast forward a bit to your uh, your council career. What took you from being in the healthcare field to being in the government field? Well, it's an interesting question. I um, I I was the director of the Department of Human Services right after um, I left. When I left the ARC, uh, the then mayor asked me to come and, and direct the Department of Human Services, and I did that for four years. 
and I went back to the nonprofit arena thereafter because I've always loved that kind of public service. And I went back to uh, start uh, an organization called Covenant House, which is an international youth-serving organization that uh, serves young people who are homeless or runaways or otherwise uh, greatly at risk. And I realized there was a piece of you know my life that was not completely fulfilled, uh, and that was being able to be in, in elected office where you have a chance to influence policies. And so um, I was living in Ward 7 at the time, which I, of course, still do, and had lived in Ward 7 for some time before that. And um, the person who was the then council member um, was a very a very bright guy. There's no question about that. He was an attorney um, and uh, was highly respected. But I think he had become dissatisfied himself uh, with having with doing what the job he was doing. He had run for mayor before that and wasn't successful, and I think he became disenchanted, disaffected uh, with the council. And I even went to him and I said, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about running for council, and I really want you to know that I'm thinking about doing this, and why don't you consider running for an at-large position? Uh, because it would be a different challenge, it would be a, a broader challenge, you wouldn't have the same kinds of issues and challenges that have um, you know, dissatisfied you at this point. And he came back to me and he said, no, I think I'm going to stay where I am. And I said, well, okay, then I'm going to run. <laughs> game on. Yep, game on. And I did run, and we, we, we were very successful uh, in that election. We won the election by 17 percentage points. And uh, that's what started my uh, elected uh, career. Uh, and I've been pursuing that now uh, ever since, which wasn't all that number of years ago. It's been about uh, 10, 12 years ago since I ran first for office, uh, the Ward 7 office. And I've been pursuing it ever since. And I think, unless I'm, uh, there's a gap in my D.C. history knowledge, I think you're the only person who's ever been a council member, a chairman, and a mayor. That's correct. T- uh, I'm the only chairperson that's ever been the mayor also. So quite an honor. T- talk to me about the, uh, the, briefly about the different skill sets that you need. Because I think a lot of people make the hop from the council to the mayor. One's executive, one's legislative, one's consensus-driven. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the different skill sets you needed in the three different roles. Well, you know, going from uh, a, being a ward council member to chair is, is quite a leap. Um, I, I was asked to run for the chair uh, within nine months after getting elected to the council. I felt like I was back in my fraternity again, you know, being uh, asked to do something I'd never done before. And I thought about it for some time, and ultimately I decided to do it, because to go back to my baseball experience, I wasn't going to say, you know, no, I'm not going to do this uh, for fear of failure. Um, so the, the skill set is quite different, uh, because when you're, when you're the uh, chair, you've got to be able to bring people together. Uh, you've got to be able to get the other 12 members working as effectively together as you possibly can. In many respects, you're still a legislator yourself, uh, but you've got to have an appreciation for the myriad uh, functions um, that trans- translate into legislation at some stage. Um, you've got to have the skill to pick the right people uh, who should be chairing those committees. You've got to be accessible uh, to those people because they oftentimes have challenges that they face and they just need somebody to talk to, and that's one of the roles uh, of the chair. Uh, you've got to try to do the best job you can to get, you know, four other people on those committees that they can work with, that they can try to get to the next place, uh, if you will. So 
There's a lot of uh, human qualities and skills that are required of the chair uh, of the council that, you know, in some respects transcend, uh, exceed those that are required of a, a council member. And then, of course, moving from chair to uh, or the council to uh, mayor, you are you are the leader of the city. You're managing what today would be, you know, nearly 700,000 people um, trying to figure out how to translate those needs, those concerns into uh, a budget, uh, into policy, because uh, the, the, the budget is the biggest policy document that we have uh, in the District of Columbia. So you got to be able to, as mayor, um, take those promises that you made when you were running for office and reasonably translate those into an agenda uh, that you can pursue uh, as mayor. And that's a very challenging and difficult uh, experience. Um, lots of people want things. Lots of people think you can do lots of things that maybe you can't do. Uh, and you do the best job that you can uh, to try to meet the, the needs of people. Um, one of the things that I did uh, going in, it was something I saw Anthony Williams do uh, when he was mayor. Um, he pulled together people from across the city. Uh, it was a citizen summit that he did. I did something a little bit different, but it was a similar concept. We brought together 2,000, 2,500 people uh, at the uh, convention center. Um, the idea was to develop a plan for us moving forward. But to get people engaged uh, so they could see themselves and where the city was going, and that also I could engage them, you know, because we certainly would, would need them, as we did, to be able to translate those things into uh, policy that would initially, you know, be in the form of a budget, or be in the form of a, of a plan that would be translated into a budget, and then to, to work to implement those things as best we possibly could. One of the things that I'm especially proud of, Josh, is what we did with uh, early childhood education. Um, we have today, uh, and I did this, uh, I started it as the council chair, and then we were able to fully implement it uh, when I became the mayor. And that is, we have virtually every three and four year old in the District of Columbia living in the city who now goes to school uh, every day. Uh, it's a part of the uh, educational system uh, in the city. There's no other state, no other city in America that can tout what we've done with early childhood education. Uh, and that's just one of many things that we were able to do. But it's, one of, it's a great example of the things that a mayor can do that, you know, as you talked about with consensus, uh, you, you can't do that readily uh, as the chairman of the council, even as a council member. Gotcha. Now let's flip back with you as the Ward 7 council member now uh, tackling a big issue like uh, United Medical Center. Yes. You don't have the tools of the, the mayor's role or of the chairman's role. How do you uh, lead on an issue like that? You have the committee chairmanship. I do. I'm chairman of the uh, health committee. And, you know, fundamentally, the council does two things. Uh, it legislates, that is, makes laws, and it does oversight. And what I've tried to do, frankly, is to use those two uh, principal functions as a way of getting at um, the needs that exist with the United Medical Center. The United Medical Center is a publicly owned uh, hospital. Uh, it was at one point Kafritz Hospital, then it was, became the Greater Southeast Hospital, and then it became after that, back in 2010, it became the United Medical uh, Center. Um, it is the only hospital that exists on the east end of the city. Um, it 
uh, is there, you know, in, in communities that, that are home to uh, uh, 150,000 people. Um, and and it's, really, it's really operated quite miserably uh, in the recent past. There's an interesting juxtaposition there, and that is as mayor, I recognize the problems uh, that we had as, um, you know, we had at United Medical Center. And I put in the budget um, $336 million for purposes of building a new hospital, uh, which I had designated to be on the grounds of St. Elizabeth's Hospital, um, and also to build an urgent care center because what is astounding is there is no urgent care center for people who are Medicaid beneficiaries. There's no urgent care center on the east end of the city. Uh, once you go past North Capitol Street, that's it. Uh, in fact, there's a Kaiser urgent care center, but they, they don't accept Medicaid. And also to try to use it as a catalyst for uh, building a real health care system on the east end uh, of the city, which there really is none uh, at this stage. So um, w w what we have done is uh, pursued this vigorously uh, at this stage, both from an oversight perspective, uh, looking at how the hospital is operating and what it is that we could do to rejuvenate um, the dream that we had, and that's building a brand new hospital. When I got back to the council, virtually all of that $336 million was gone. Uh, it was in the capital budget. Um, it had been dispersed in other areas. Uh, I'm not even sure where all of it went. But when I got back uh, last in January of 2017, there was only $96 million left uh, in the budget, in the capital budget. And you couldn't even build a new hospital out of Lego blocks uh, with that kind of money. And so um, I began the process of saying, look, uh, the need for a new hospital isn't going to go away. Uh, and we need to work now to try to make that happen. And um, working with uh, some of my colleagues, uh, you know, with, for example, Mary Che, who has, you know, oversight of um, areas where there are huge capital dollars, um, she was able to, to cobble together $100 million, which we moved over to uh, the uh, hospital uh, to, um, you know, begin to rebuild a budget that could build a new hospital. And what we've done through this last budget uh, is cobbled together now. We're back up to $300 million, and we've designated the site as St. Elizabeth's. Uh, we did that in the Budget Support Act um, for fiscal year uh, 18. What we've got to do now is get moving. Uh, so uh, the, the fact is that the hospital has fallen upon desperate times. Uh, we just changed the operator recently in November uh, of 17, uh, there's a selection process afoot now to bring in a new operator, and we hope that they can right the ship and get us moving in the right direction. Gotcha. Let me throw in one quick closing question because we're almost out of time. Um, question you might have heard before, but in a slightly different format. You've dedicated your whole life to public service. What will the final chapter of that life look like? When will you know that your time in public service has come to an end? I'd love to say when it's all done, uh, but of course it will never be uh, all done. I don't know the answer to that. I love doing what I do uh, every day. Um, it's what brought me back um, you know, to public service uh, after having a, an experience that was quite untoward uh, in my life. Um, and um, it, it, it was one of the things that rejuvenated me. That is the opportunity to continue serving people 
I think when I feel like I've done all I can do uh, for people uh, and also trying to do the best I can to preserve or to um, create opportunities for the next generation to come along, um, I'll probably have a sense then that's, that's it. All right. We'll, uh, we'll stay tuned. Thank you, Josh. And uh, speaking of stay tuned, uh, listeners, the time went so quickly. We hope to uh, catch up with Councilmember Gray uh, sometime really soon. But unfortunately for now, we have to just say tune in next time. Uh, we're at 96.3 on your HD4 dial, uh, dcradio.gov. Uh, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. I'm your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you. Thank you.